0: Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. Hello, how are we today? I just feel like it's this epic intro, and then you're like, oh, I've got to get up after that. So, hello, how are we? Hey, um, has anyone been watching the sport? Great start. Awesome. Okay. Well, I've not been watching this sport, but all my friends are posting about Stephen Smith at the moment. Lions lost last night. Anyone watch the Lions? Disappointing. Did you know, not even making this up, my my stepdad, not my biological dad, my stepdad played for the Lions. Not even kidding. Captain Queensland when he was 19. I got none of his genetic code. I'm not related to him biologically, unfortunately. But he was an awesome AFL player. I am not. Okay, so we're in the middle of a series called Helping the Next Generation Win, and sometimes investing in the next generation can be a bit full-on, a bit difficult, a bit scary. Uh, Was anyone a bit of a terror kid when they were young, running around school, causing trouble? Right? Shane Ginn should be putting his hand up. Where is he? (laughs) That's the rumour. Um, I went to school with a mate, I'm going to make up a name, we're going to call him Jack Smith, that is not his real name, but to protect his identity and future career, we're going to make up a name for him. He was a shocker, he was off the charts smart, he got an OP two, but teachers could not stand having him in class. One time, one of the teachers walked up to him, let's say uh, Jack was sitting at the seat there, the teacher walked up to him, she had enough of him, and she walked up to him and said. Jack Smith, I've got a problem with you. And Jack literally, sitting in his chair, simply stood up and said, don't tell me your problems, sat back down and then continued doing his work. And I'm sitting there going, who does this, right? No one does this. Another time, my friend um, uh, Josh, and I've got to keep making up this name, my friend Josh and Jack and I were all sitting together in class, and I was sitting here And my friend Josh was sitting here and Jack, the terror kid, was sitting here, right? For some reason, we were in maths class together and the only one of us who brought a textbook on this particular day was Josh. So I couldn't see the textbook and my friend Jack couldn't see the textbook either. So we're sitting there going, what are we going to do? And then my friend Jack's like... Josh, you need to put the textbook in front of Mark and then we can share. And then Josh is like, no, that's too far. I'll share with Mark, but not with you. It's getting this massive debate. I don't know why. It's over a textbook. Who cares, right? Anyway, literally, Jack, the the textbook's going back and forth in front of me between them. I'm caught in the middle. Jack grabs the textbook, not his textbook, grabs the textbook, rips it in two in like an amazing feat of strength, and then says, there you go, and puts it back down. This is what he would do crazy stuff. Another time, I'll pick on Jason. You a were teacher, weren't you? Okay, so Jason, let's say, actually, I'll get you to stand up. So give Jason a big round of applause. So we'll call you Mr. Perkins today. So let's say I am Jack. This is what would happen when I was, in okay, I'd say, um, oh, Mr. Perkins, I need some help. And you'd be busy. So you'd just be like, you know, helping someone else. So, oh, Mr. Perkins, I need some help. Mr. Perkins, I need some help. And eventually, you'd say, I'm coming, Jack, you know. Okay. And then he'd just go, Mr. Perkins, I need some help. Mr. Perkins, Mr. Perkins, Mr. Perkins, I need And we were sitting there going, what the heck is going on? This is who I went to school with. Thank you, Jason. That's fantastic, right? There are crazy people in class. If you are a teacher, I'm a teacher. I think teaching is the best job ever. I love it. But there are crazy students out there, right? Sometimes investing in the next generation can be very difficult. When it comes to investing in the next generation, I think there are two main approaches that people take. The first one, if you listen to kind of YouTube videos and sociologists and different people who talk about business and leadership, some will say that millennials are lazy, they're ungrateful, and they're self-centred, and that our approach should be to write them off. Who's heard that kind of stuff before? Now, interestingly... A gentleman by the name of Kenneth Freeman, for his Cambridge dissertation, said this. "The counts of in- This is talking about young people. The counts of indictment are bad manners, contempt for authority, disrespect to elders, and love for chatter in place of exercise. Children began to be the tyrants, not the servants of their households. They contradicted their parents. They are cruel to their teachers. This is what... This gentleman wrote for his dissertation for his PhD, his doctorate work. Now, interestingly, this was written in 1907. The reality is, you may encounter people like my friend Jack who make you want to write off the next generation. But people have been writing off the next generation for years. This is just one thing after the next, after the next. Everyone writes off the next. You know, young people today, when I was your age, you know, you know the the sayings. There is a tendency for a lot of people to write off the next generation. Now, interestingly, I'm a high school teacher, by the way. Interestingly, I never hear teachers talk like this. Isn't that interesting? The people who spend the most time with high schoolers never talk like that. Because high school teachers know there are lazy kids, there are self-centered students, but there are also incredibly hardworking students, incredibly selfless students, they're incredibly generous and capable and responsible people. Every generation has its own set of lazy people, and every generation has its own set of hardworking, capable, responsible people. So clearly, I'm assuming that if you care about helping the next generation win, you would know that I would know writing them off is not the way to go. There is another approach, though, that seems to be becoming more uh, prevalent today, and that is that we do everything for them. Rather than write them off, we decide we're going to do everything we can to help them succeed and thrive. Um, there's a, there's a, a middle school teacher who wrote a blog, she went by an anonymous name, and the blog went viral. And she told the story about a parent. A father who was contacted by his teenage daughter asking for him to basically, on the way to work, come to school and drop off her water bottle. In the blog post, she said this. Hi, sorry, the parent said sheepishly. He was in a suit, clearly headed for work. Remy, this is the daughter's name, kept texting me that she needed it, handing the water bottle. I texted back, don't they have water fountains at your school? But I guess she just had to have it out of the bottle. And this middle school teacher writes that this is becoming more and more prevalent in her school. Um, You may have heard of helicopter parenting, there's a new term that's floating around called lawnmower parenting. And lawnmower parenting is not just a cool name, it's not just someone writing a PhD and wanting you know, a doctorate out of it, but it's this idea that the parents can get out in front of their, their child and basically, like a lawnmower, clear the path for the child so there are no obstacles standing in their way, so nothing's going to hold them back. Now, again, none of this sounds bad, except that they take it to such an extreme that these children who are meant to be growing up to become fully functioning, responsible adults in the world don't know how to cope with obstacles. They don't know how to cope with hardship. The path has been so cleared for them that nothing is difficult and they end up with what they're now describing as cotton wool kids or bubble wrap kids. So the question I want to ask today is this. If writing people off doesn't work, And doing everything for them doesn't work. Is there a better approach to investing in the next generation? In order to do this, I want to look at what Jesus did to invest in his disciples. To give you a bit of context, I'm not very good at giving information. I'm a maths teacher. I like thinking in terms of ideas. I need to give you some information, right? So if you're someone who's like, I don't like information, I'm on your team. But I want to give you some information so it makes a bit of sense. To give you a bit of background, When Jesus chose his disciples, if you're not a church person, disciple just means follower. When he chose his disciples, they were most likely teenagers. Now, you may not know that when you read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus. You may not pick up easily their uh, their, their, their teenagers. But this is what we know. Under the Jewish educational system, there was a very regimented educational path for Jewish boys. At the age of five, a Jewish boy had to start learning the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures or what we would refer to today as the Old Testament. At the age of 10, with the Mishnah, they had to learn further details of the commands that were not written down. So obviously, back in Exodus, God gave um, Moses a whole heap of commands that were written down in the Scriptures. Then there were, the, I guess, these oral commands or these, these commands that were passed on that were not recorded. That was what they studied at, at age 10. At age 13, they were told they had to take on responsibility for fulfilling the commandments. At age 15, they had to study the Talmud, which were teachings, Jewish teachings that guided daily living. And then at 18, they were ready for the bride chamber. In other words, they were set aside to be married. Now, we know of the 12 disciples that are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels, we know that Peter was married. You may not have known that either. We know that because his mother-in-law gets mentioned, right? Matthew eighteen fourteen. when Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever and Jesus went and healed her. So we know that Peter was married, but we have no record of any of the other 12 being married whatsoever. And most scholars would say, the reason we have no record of that is because they weren't married, certainly they weren't married at the age where Jesus chose them. They may have gone on to be married later in life. So, if they weren't married, what it means is, according to Jewish custom, they were most likely under the age of 18. Peter would have been the oldest, and he was married, and that's why Peter was designated as leader. It certainly wasn't because he was the most competent, it certainly wasn't because he was the most courageous, he was none of those things, but he was the oldest, and I guess Jesus thought, well, he's the oldest, we better make him the team captain. So... If you're sitting there today thinking, how on earth could God believe in young people? How on earth could you believe in young people? How could we as a society believe in young people? Jesus believed in young people. He chose people most likely under the age of 18. Added to that, the disciples that Jesus chose, the followers that he chose, did not measure up spiritually. Now, Uh, Rick Thiessen says this, going back to this uh, table. Rick Thiessen says this, If you were 15 and and you'd done your basic training in the Jewish educational system in the Torah, a boy, a Jewish boy who was bright enough or whose parents were rich enough, would find a rabbi to take them on as a student. You'd have to show proficiency... And it's assumed that many students had very large portions of the Law and the Prophets, Law and the Prophets is another way of saying the Old Testament Scriptures, committed to memory. If your son didn't merit this honour, they would enter the workforce by their mid-teens and in almost every case, apprentice under their fathers in the family trade. Now, who did Jesus pick when he chose Jesus? his 12 followers, his 12 disciples. Were they teenagers in their late teens who were studying under a rabbi, studying under a a Jewish teacher of the day? No, they'd been sent back to their fathers to learn the trade or the family trade, the family business. So here we have a bunch of very ordinary teenagers that could not cut it in the religious system of their day. It would be so easy for Jesus to go, I don't want to deal with teenagers. They're still hormonal. They're going through all sorts of stuff. You know, they're irresponsible. They're lazy. They're self-centered. No, Jesus didn't do that. He chose teenagers. It would have been very easy for him to say, well, I'm going to get the best of the best. I'm going to get the guys who, who cut it in the religious system, who've been appointed rabbis. I'm going to go to the rabbis and say, who are the best? Who's your number one student? Who's your number two student? I'm going to ask them to leave you and come and join me and learn unto me. But Jesus didn't do that. He chose young, team, young men in their late teens, who could not cut it in the religious system of their day. And the third thing you need to know, and you may or may not know this, but I'm sure even if you're not from church, you would know, those 12 disciples went on to change the world in unbelievable ways. The reason we are here today is because of what God did, not just through Jesus, but those 12 disciples. Now, in light of this, really the question I want to ask today is this. How is Jesus able to take a bunch of very ordinary teenagers and invest in them in such a way that they would go on to change the world? If you have a Bible there, you might like to turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're kind of new to church, the Bible's actually not just one book. It's made up of 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, which is sometimes referred to as the Jewish Scriptures. They're all the books of the Bible leading up to Jesus. And then there's 27 books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're interested in exploring who Jesus is, start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're just biographies of Jesus. You would think they would be called Jesus. They're named after the author rather than the person they're about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those authors, Luke went on to write another book called Acts. Acts is a history book, and it's a history book about what happened after Jesus' death and resurrection, and how these 12 disciples really God used, how God used these 12 disciples to change the world. So in Acts chapter one, we pick up on the very first chapter. Luke writes, then they gathered around him, this is the disciples, they gathered around him and asked him, this is asking Jesus, Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, remember, they're in their late teens. They've just seen their rabbi, their teacher, die before their very eyes, come back to life and eat and drink and spend 40 days with them. And they're they're worried about what's going to happen. And they're like, Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, to understand what's going on, this is a very reasonable question. About 400 years before, I think, actually I might have my, my, my time is wrong, but several hundred years before, the Greeks had basically, the Greek empire had come in and taken over the world. And obviously Israel, which was the promised land, the Jewish nation, was infiltrated by Greek people and their culture. As a result of that, the New Testament is written in Greek. But then over the top of them came the Roman Empire. So now you've got not just Jewish people living in Israel, but Greek people living in Israel and Greek culture is part of it. And then the Romans had come over the top of them, and you've got Roman rule. And what Jesus is being asked here is: okay, God, okay, Jesus, you know, the disciples are the same. We know that this land, Israel, the promised land, we believe according to our Jewish scriptures, this was set aside for us. Is this now, Jesus, as the king, are you going to take over from the Romans? Are you going to drive them out and give us back our promised land? And he goes on to say this. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus is saying is this. It's not your job as my disciples to to worry about what's going to happen in Israel. That's not your focus. I have a much bigger task at hand. I don't want you to focus on a physical kingdom I want you to see there is something way bigger going on. This is not just about the Jews. It's not just about a physical kingdom. This is now about the entire world. And this is about an invisible kingdom that will be scattered across every nation and every people group. And it will explode inside people's hearts. The rule of God, the the, the rule of God living in people and through people, basically a kingdom of love, that would spread invisibly across the nations. So, in a sense, Jesus is literally saying, I want you to go to the ends of the earth for me. This is not just something you might say in a love song, you know, I go to the ends of the earth for you. Jesus is literally saying, I want you to go to the ends of the earth for me. You're going to receive my spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity is going to come and live inside you and live through you. And you're going to scatter across every nation and every people group and tell them about what you have seen happen in this very place. Now, that's a big, big mission. I've never been asked to do anything that big, right, ever in my life. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, Jesus, You're going to give them this massive responsibility. What are you going to do to invest in them? What are you going to do to help them win? They're teenagers, Jesus. You've had them for three years. That's not even like an entire high school education, right? You've had them for three, three and a half years. You're sending them out as missionaries and church planters. What are you going to do to invest in them? We read on, verse nine. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, Jesus, like, you just given them the biggest mission ever, and then you're gone. And you're like, what the heck? Like, this is not how it's meant to be. Isn't there a mentoring program? What, how, you know, like, what the heck is going on? Why does Jesus leave? This is very confusing. Here's the thing Jesus did not just get up and leave and ascend to heaven because he felt like it. This wasn't an impulse decision. This was something that was always going to happen. Jesus knew. He even said in, John, um, in, in the Gospel of John several times, he told his disciples, there's coming a time where I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be with you. Now, this is key. I think this is absolutely key. Jesus invested in the next generation in such a way that he was able to leave and they could still succeed. That's it. There was a point where he knew he would not be in the room. He knew he would not be there to hold their hand. He knew he was not going to be there. And he's saying to them, I'm going to have to invest in you. I'm going to have to give you opportunities. I'm going to have to allow you to encounter obstacles. I'm going to allow you to fail. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pick you up when you go through difficult times. I'm going to allow you to experience everything because there is coming a time three, three and a half years later where I will not physically be with you. I need to prepare you for when I am not here. And yes, I will give you my spirit, but I am also going to give you experiences and opportunities and responsibilities along the way so that when I leave, you can succeed. This is revolutionary. Because when we think about the next generation, if we constantly do everything for them, we're not preparing them for the moment where we can no longer be physically with them. Um. So rather than write them off, rather than do everything for them, I think what Jesus did for three, three and a half years with his disciples is he placed responsibility into their hands. He let them have opportunities to grow and develop. He believed in them. He he did everything he could to help them succeed but he allowed them to fail. He allowed them to learn from their mistakes. He got beside them when they felt discouraged. When, when Peter made a complete mess of it, Jesus went to him personally and said, geez, you know, he believed in Peter and restored him back and said, you can do this, I believe in you. There is a sense in which he placed responsibility in their hands. How did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he knew that he was going to leave. Adam Costco says this, We ask 18-year-olds to make huge decisions about their career and their financial future when a month ago they had to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. This is ridiculous. How crazy is this? Um, If you listen to sociologists and people who study the next generation, they will tell you there are parents who are ringing up universities and basically talking to lecturers on behalf of their 18-year-old children because they didn't get the grade that they wanted. There are other people who are apparently ringing up, um, the, the, the maybe you know, young people in their early 20s are going for job interviews. They're straight out of uni or finished their apprenticeship. They have a job interview. And they go through the interview, and then at the end of the interview, they say, now, my parents would like to speak to you before I accept this job. Are you serious? This is crazy. We are not preparing people for a time when we will leave. Probably the best way to explain this is if I can share some experience from my own life. Now, I'm very aware <clears throat> I'm a teacher, and teacher stories are pretty boring for students, and they're probably pretty boring for ex-students, which I think covers everyone, right? So, but I am literally paid as a maths teacher. I know you think maths is boring, but someone thinks it's important. So I am literally paid to invest in the next generation. That is my full-time job. This is what I know. I have moments when I want to write people off. I had a student even just this year who for some reason, he just decided to start coming and uh, just didn't bring a textbook for several weeks. It took me about two weeks to realize he wasn't bringing a textbook. I'm probably not a very good teacher. But he wasn't bringing a textbook at all. This is a maths class. He wasn't doing any work at all. I finally confronted him about it. I said, mate, you know, you're 16, 17. I think he might be 17 years old. Or maybe 16, 16 years old. You're a young man. You, if I'm looking over your shoulder, look, this isn't gonna work. This is not how you become an adult. You're 16. You're old enough to get a job. Like, this is what society says, you know? What's going on? Why don't you drop down to the easier level maths? That way you can do no work and you'll pass, and it's no big deal. You clearly don't want to do any work. And he says to me, I can't drop down to the easier level maths. I'm like. Mate, I just think you need to. You don't do anything. You're gonna fail. Like you're gonna get like you'd be lucky to get 10% without being rude. Like that's you need to drop down. And he says to me, No, no, I want to be in the army. And I'm like, Yeah, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, you want to be in the army? I don't know much about the army other than the fact that you need to shoot guns and be extremely disciplined. This is the least disciplined person I've ever met, right? I was sitting there thinking, you've got zero chance of cutting in the army. I didn't say that. But everything in me wanted to write him off. I gave him a massive pep talk, and I I don't know if he's come good, but he certainly started working in my class, right? But there is a tendency for many of us at times to write people off. There's another tendency to do everything for them. I work at Mueller College, which is the sister school to Carmichael here. And as a school, we care deeply about wanting our students to succeed. This is not an ad for our school, by the way. Um, I, as a teacher, I don't love maths. I know that wouldn't be, you know, surprising. But I care about students understanding maths. I think maths can be really, really hard. I work extremely hard to be really clear so that students can understand what the heck is going on and not just teach them formulas, that's a really weak way to teach maths, but to help people to think mathematically and problem-solve their way through uh, questions so they can do the harder questions and they actually understand what they're doing. I work really hard on that and so do other teachers. As a school, there's about three or four teachers, not me, who provide free after-school tutoring, three or four days a week, it's unbelievable. This is what they do. Not, they're not paid for this. This is what they do. We just on Friday night, on my Friday night, I could have been out with friends. I was at a maths study party. I'm not even making this up. This is a real thing. We had 70 year 11 and 12 students in a massive room on a Friday night eating pizza and studying, doing you know math, math methods and maths B and math C and all sorts of different things, general maths. This is what they did. I really care and people I work with care deeply about the success of our students but I will not do everything for them. The night before the exam at 11 p.m., when I get an email from a student who's in a panic and they haven't done any study for two weeks leading up to the exam and they're cramming the night before and they email me at 11 p.m. and they want to know the answer to a question, delete. (laughs) I don't know if that's what I'm meant to do, but delete. I'm not going to rescue them. That will not help them long term. When I have students say to me, I don't know how to study, I say... These are some general principles of how to study. And they say, oh, well, can you just tell me every question I should do? I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because they need to take responsibility for their own learning. This is what I know. There is a time at the end of year 12 under the new math system, I'm educating you on the new system at the moment, where every math student in high school has to do an exam. It is a 50% exam. It counts 50% of their entire mark in maths. For their schooling. Now, this is not an in-class quiz where the teacher might feel sorry for them and go give them a couple of you know tips and advice. This is not an assignment where they get mum and dad to do it and pretend they did it all themselves, right? This isn't even a school-based exam where I may or may not be in the room. This is an external exam. Written by an external organization that counts for 50% of their marks, and as a teacher, I have no idea what is going to be on the exam other than what the students know based on the curriculum. I am not even in the room when the exam is conducted. In other words, I know there is a time, in a sense, when I have to leave them. And if I am not preparing them for a time where they can do things on their own without me, I am not setting them up for success. That is what it looks like to invest in the next generation. Now, I'm not suggesting that we make two-year-olds pack their own lunch, right? We have to work out what is age appropriate. But given the fact that in society you can get a job at 14, we need to start believing in the next generation and giving them more responsibility, What experts are saying now is that in some ways, young people are growing up way too fast and way too slow. They're growing up way too fast in that they're being exposed at a very, very young age because of the internet and social media at pretty full on things. And it's way too fast. But on the other hand, they're growing up way too slow in that they're not being entrusted with any kind of responsibility. They want their mum or their dad or their brother or their friends to do everything for them. And they can't cope in life when things get hard. If you're saying today, well, this is great, um, but I've just come to church and I thought we're going to talk about Jesus. (laughs) And look, I think it's good that we invest in the next generation, but I just want to actually know about this whole Christian thing. I just want to point out something really interesting. In the same way there are three approaches to the next generation, these same three approaches can be seen in the way that people approach God. Some people in society, not many, they write God off. In the same way that some people write off the next generation, they write God off. In the West, in Western countries like Australia, um, maybe 10, 15, 20%, depending on which surveys you read, people just say, hey, look, I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic, but I'm not interested in that whole God thing you need to know that's fine. That's completely fine. We love you and care for you anyway. We, we don't dislike you. We're not against you. You're not an enemy. We want nothing but the best for you. If that's you today and someone's dragged you to church, I, I don't know why you've said yes, but we want you to know you've, you're really welcome. Other people, they, in the same way that we can invest in the next generation by doing everything for them, they decide to take that same approach to God and do everything for God. Most people in society, if you ask them, how do I get to heaven? How do you make sure that things are good between you and God? They would say, I've got to believe in God and I've got to work really, really hard to make sure I live a good life. Now, nobody's perfect, but you've got to try your best. And again, that is an approach to God. That is not what Jesus teaches. But there is a third way to approach God And in the same way, for those of us who are wanting to invest in the next generation, we need to place responsibility in the hands of the the people we're investing in. We can also approach God by saying, we are going to trust you. In the same way we trust the next generation coming through, Jesus, we are going to trust you. And we are going to place the responsibility of our lives, the responsibility of our forgiveness, the responsibility of our whether or not we get to heaven, we're going to place that in your hands. In a sense, we're going to place our lives and eternity into your hands, Jesus. That is what it means to believe in Jesus. How do we know we trust someone? We're willing to place something in their hands. And if you're saying today, listen, I've just come to church. I'm trying to figure this whole Christian thing out. There are probably a list of questions that you've got I'd love to speak with you. Jason would love to speak to you. I see Earl over there. There's a number of people who are happy just to sit down. We don't have all the answers, but we're happy to kind of share what we know and and maybe journey with you as you ask questions. But if you want to know what does it look like to actually become a Christian, it means we stop writing God off. It means we stop trying to do everything for him to make him love us and forgive us. And we realize, hang on, I believe Jesus is Trustworthy. I believe He was the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. I believe that when He said He'd come to bring life, He was telling the truth. When He said He'd come to lay down His life as a ransom for many, He was telling the truth. And I'm going to trust my life and eternity into His hands. And if that's you today, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to do that. So if we just have every single person with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. Today, Father, we acknowledge that we are sinful people who don't just need rules or regulations, but we actually need a saviour. So in this moment, Jesus, we declare a need for you to save us. In the best way we know how, we are going to entrust our life and eternity into your hands, Jesus. Would you pay for our sin in full? We believe you rose from the dead. Would you give us your spirit like you did with your disciples? Would you come into our lives, make us the people you want us to be? And Jesus, right now we trust you love us and have accepted us because of your finished work on the cross and that you're preparing a place for us in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.